And now presenting session four of the COM315 podcast group. Hi, everyone. Uh, so we're, our podcast is named Bad Intentions uh, because we, uh, we realized that, and this is especially brought out by when uh, Sam Kenny, the dance uh the dance, the choreographer came and visited, that um, people get really caught up in what, in trying to peg what an artist's intention originally was when creating a piece of art. And Sam really brought out the fact that it really doesn't matter what the original intent was as long as it means something to you. So our um, podcast series is going to highlight that in three different ways. We're going to highlight it in first, the area of music. Um, second in the area of visual art, and then third in the area of theater. So our first is going to be music. Why don't you take away? So hi, I'm Kelsey, um, and I chose The Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Um, They're an English band in 1970s, 1980s, and this song is notably one of the, their best hits and maybe best rock hits of all time. Um, yeah. At one so here's, I'll let you guys just listen to it first and then we can see the meaning afterwards. Let me know what you guys think. And she's So the song changes up at the end. You see a soft part in the beginning, and then we'll go to the end, and I'll show you. There's a guitar solo by Jimmy Page. Okay. So have any of you, are any of you familiar with Led Zeppelin at all? Yes? Okay, good. Um, have any of you watched them perform? Okay, well, it's, it's exhilarating. I highly recommend it. But, um, so did anyone notice what he was saying at all in those parts? Well, he starts off saying that um, all things glitters are gold and that there's a woman pretty much, you know, she's going to heaven um, because she's obsessed with all this gold and everything, but she really doesn't do anything to get it. So, yeah. What did you guys get from it, though? Um, there wasn't a whole lot of lyrics that we could see, but definitely, like, the mood and the feeling is a lot different. You can kind of tell the old schoolness of, like, not super old school, but, like, uh, it's definitely very different than, like, what our modern music is now with the changing of the theme. Um, I, 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 you know, I wish I, like, had, like, the lyrics in front of me to kind of analyze that a little bit more, but... I know that this is, especially after, you know, you kind of explained what the song was a little bit, but there was this one line, I can't even remember what it was specifically, right in the first section, that was something about, like, she's going up to heaven or something like that. I don't know, I, that brought me to, like, drug use or something. I don't know, like, it, just the tone of the song, it was kind of, like, uh, ethereal, kind of, like, um, softer, spacey, I don't know, and with, uh, coupled with, like, the lyric about going up to heaven or something like that. I don't know, I just pictured like someone being high mm -hmm. with the tone of the music and that one specific lyric, specific lyric without context. Yeah, and they were definitely big drug users. Um, <laughs> so that makes sense. And in the beginning, it's kind of just like 
the softness representing her as a person, this person that um, that he was seeing. And then Jimmy Page's solo at the end, which is a double neck guitar, which is also a huge thing that I'm a really big fan of. Um, and pretty much him playing this solo is her walking into heaven just like in shock because she can't be saved like in real life. She's obsessed with money, but when she gets to heaven, nothing can save her except herself. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so did anyone else get anything maybe that wasn't either that or what I got from the few clips that we were able to play? Did anybody get anything different? I will add something because for me, this, uh, this has a lot of memories because when you think about the 1970s, every high school dance, this was the slow dance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so uh, it always carries with it memories is from, not necessarily from my own life because I didn't get to slow dance that much, but, uh, but of the dances and the culture around it. If you were there for it, it carries a little bit of extra baggage. I, I actually, that brings me to a, a really great point about music specifically. It, it, I think that it, this applies to a lot of arts in general, but especially music. It's very, very good at bringing us back to a, a different place in our lives when we like first heard it. And not only does it remind us of something, because you know you can see uh, a picture that reminds you of something else, or someone can mention, oh, remember when X happened? The thing with music, at least for me, is that sometimes I'll, you know, be obsessed with like a song or like really into a song during a phase of my life. And then I find that when I go back and I listen to either that song, songs I listen to that are similar to that song back then, I am not only transported to the memory of that time when I listened to that song, but just feeling like I'm that person that I was two, three, four years ago listening to that song. And it really makes me aware of how much I've changed because I can say, I now, you know, when I'm listening to the song, I feel how I was three years ago. And then when I'm done with that song, I can kind of analyze, wow, I'm not that kind of person anymore. I'm not the same kind of person I was back then. I don't know. And I think that's a really, really cool thing about music specifically is that it just can really, it's very similar to scents in that way to me. Scents can really just bring me back to a place where like I smell something and I'm like, wow, that reminds me of feeling this kind of emotion. And I think the only other thing that kind of equates to that is, for me, music. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that music is one of the only things that you kind of develop your own experiences around a song or an artist. And your experiences obviously aren't going to be exactly what the artist intended, but that doesn't mean that your experience with the song is invalid. That just brings your own perception to it to a new level. And that's kind of what the artist hopefully wants for their pieces. Well, moving on to our next section, Kara. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we don't need to take close up. This is kind of, um, I'm not really focusing on one specific piece, but kind of Frida Kali, probably most of you have a general sense of who she is from arts classes, um, maybe like Spanish history. Um, so that's kind of what her, most of her pieces look like. Um, I really like this one. That There's a lot more that has to do with um, like her duplicating herself and like some of them have medical stuff in it which is kind of cool but just like the theme of her paintings all kind of revolve around one specific concept um so what did you guys learn 
What's your basic knowledge on Frida Kahlo and why she paints like this? I mean, I don't really remember exactly what it was, but I know, isn't she like very iconic for her paintings, the way she portrays herself? Mm -hmm. Yes, do you know why? I'm, I can't remember, I can't okay. pinpoint it, I'm sorry. That's okay, I'm... We'll get to you in one second. Do you have any hypotheses looking at these photos? Why? Anything at all? I mean, I don't think she's making herself to be this elaborate, beautiful woman. I think she's just showing herself as she is. So. We'll get to that. I do want to, like, I, I want to talk to you. All right, what's up? Uh, she has a unibrow. That is also very true, mm -hmm. which kind of goes back to what was just said. Yep. Okay. Um, anyone else have any thoughts? What do you guys think about this? <clears throat> um, I, I really, I'm not familiar with, like, studying Frida Kahlo. Um, I know the name. I know, like, the kind of vibe that I get when I think of Frida Kahlo's work. Um, but just looking at this specific collection of paintings, the unibrow is almost a universal thing in every one of these. Like, there, I think there's one where it's like, there's like maybe half a centimeter of space between the, the eyebrows. Um, the, the colors are really pretty striking too. Um, it's almost realism, it's almost realistic but it's just like a step away from being realistic, I, I think. And I think that with the way that she portrays herself in like a non-standard uh, style of beauty, that color scheme really complements that very well. Because it's like there's something, it's right, but there's something a little bit off about it, which is very much, I think, how she paints beauty. Um, looking at this, I immediately notice her bold features and that I know that I will never be able to look at another Frida Kahlo painting and not be able to recognize it. Um, I'm somewhat familiar with her and I know that there is a lot of meaning behind what she paints, but I wasn't really sure. And just like you said, the colors are just like amazing in every single one of them, so much detail. Okay, so basically where these types of paintings came from was Frida was born diseased from like four years old. She had polio, so she was already like from a young age she felt kind of different and then when she was 12 she got in a trolley accident that left her paralyzed and eventually one of her legs was amputated so she was always kind of looked at as different and crippled and just not normal and then obviously because this is our um, actual picture of her she did look different she had that unibrow um, so she became obsessed with this I this concept of beauty and what beauty really is and that only got heightened when she married Diego Rivera, who also kind of shared the same concept, but he also kind of played with her emotions with this idea because he cheated on her a lot and whatever, whatever. So that didn't help her obsession with it, but these paintings go to show that she still tried to show herself as beautiful, but in her type, her concept of beauty. And although it might not be conventional, um, like it's still beautiful in its own way. And that's kind of where that came from. Awesome. So any other questions or like comments about Frida Kahlo's work? It's pretty uh, iconic. It's pretty iconic. Yeah. You can see like a painting and know that that was Frida Kahlo's work. And even exactly. if you don't really know much about her, yeah. which was me before we started researching into this topic. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to move on to um, theater. So I have, I'm going to just read aloud uh, like a, a small monologue 
from one of Shakespeare's problem plays. So I don't know, um, does anybody know the main categories of Shakespeare's plays? There are normally three kinds. Any one of them. Tragedy? Absolutely tragedy. Uh, Almost. Satire? Kind of. Hold on. We, I, we'll get there. But tragedy is definitely one, and you, you're on the right track. I'll be good. Right to you. Are the last two um, comedy and historical? That's exactly right. Comedy. Uh, comedy is like the technical name for the term. Did you have anything else to add? I was just going to say comedy. I was just going to say comedy. Cool. Okay. So those are the three main uh, you know, subsets of all of Shakespeare's work, except there is a, little, so a lot of Shakespeare scholars have made a fourth one called the problem plays. The problem plays are plays that don't neatly fit in one of those three categories. So an identifier for each one of those three categories. Um, a comedy always generally ends in a marriage. Uh, so Much Ado About Nothing is a really good example of a comedy. Um, and let's see, the uh, tragedy is Macbeth. Everyone dies at the end, or most people die at the end. That's a tragedy. But, uh, you know, the end is a signifier, but the entire show can, you know, lead you to that conclusion. And then there's the histories, like King Lear and, like, all of the other kings. Uh, Shakespeare wrote a lot of them. Uh, and they document uh, history that happened. It was set in a specific time with a cer uh, certain person. So there are also a subset called problem plays that don't neatly fit in all of those. They kind of have a lot of elements of, of all three. And one of those is Measure for Measure, which uh, is about, uh, it's about a lot of things. It's very complicated as Shakespeare's plays tend to be, which is why he's such a, um, a master. But overall, there is a city that um, is ruled by a duke who leaves and then someone else takes his place in a disguise. Shakespeare loved disguises. Um, and then, so this, um, this noble is jailed. Uh, his name is Claudio. Um, and his sister, Isabella, is free. So I'm gonna read you uh, just a monologue, and I'm not gonna give you any context for the scene first, and then I want to know what your impressions of this monologue are, and then I'll give you the context. Oh, you beast, oh, faithless coward, oh, dishonest wretch, wilt thou be made a man out of my vice? Is not a kind of incest to take life from thine own sister's shame? What should I think? Heaven shield my mother played my father fair for such a warped slip of wilderness ne'er issued from his blood. Take my defiance, die, perish. Might but my bending down reprieve thee from thy fate. It should proceed. I'll pray a thousand prayers for thy death. No word to save thee. So I just want someone's first impression of what that was. Anyone, anyone have any ideas? And there's no wrong answer. Yeah? I don't need to give you a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> um, that kind of gave me flashbacks to Julius Caesar. Um, mm -hmm. What's that? Et tu brute? Or yeah. yeah, that kind of saying. I don't know exactly why, but just kind of that like bitter, like stabbing in the back type of attitude. Yeah. It's a very biting monologue. Mm -hmm. It's very biting. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm not the correct character to play this. I, you know, I didn't do a lot of character development for this. I kind of just read it off a page, more from a literature standpoint than a dramatic standpoint. But there's still you know, enough in the language to kind of give you something else. Someone else, anyone else have any impressions? What did that make you feel? What did the words do for you? Anything, even if it's just a word description. I definitely think it seemed very like angry and almost bitter um, and just like very frustrated and desperate almost. Those, I believe, are perfect adjectives based on the context of the scene. So, Claudio is a noble in this town. 
uh, in this city rather, uh, who has been jailed by the fake king in the disguise that everyone thinks is the real king. The real duke actually is his, his he's a duke. Um, Claudio has been jailed. His sister is Isabella, that's who just gave that monologue. Basically what this duke wants is, Claudio is already sentenced to death. That's been known for a while. The only way, and Isabella went to visit with the duke to try and plead, like, plead for her brother's life, to try and save him in some way or another. The only way the duke will allow Claudio to be set free is if Isabella, who is like a very good, virtuous woman, has sex with him. That's the only way that he is going to let her brother free. So now Isabella is in a, between a rock and a hard place. It's either, you know, break her virtue as an unmarried woman and have, you know, sexual relations with this duke and then go to hell for it is what she's thinking. She's going to be damned forever if she does this action and save her brother or let her brother die and save her virtue. So what happened in this scene is she went to visit her brother after finding this out and basically told him, the, the, you know, there's something that I can do to save you, but it would, you know, damn me to hell, so I can't do it. I hope that you're okay with that. And Claudio fights back and he goes, well, you know, he gives this really beautiful monologue about, uh, about death and about how, how scary that is and about how unknown it is. And as soon as he starts to show doubt and almost begins to ask her to do this bad thing, she goes off and she tells him what for. And that's her monologue at him saying that, how could you even dare ask me to do this? How, how could you want me to do this? Do you not care for me? The one line in particular that I think is the most powerful is heaven shield my mother played my father fair. Does anybody have any guess for what that might mean? It's very Shakespearean. Heaven shield my mother played my father fair. It, it took me a while. I, I had to like take a class in Shakespeare and this was one of the lines that we discussed. That is literally Isabella saying, my mother ha must have slept with someone else because there's no way that you are my brother. Wait, say it again. Heaven shield my mother played my father fair. My mom played, my, my mom played my dad. There's no way that my dad is the same dad as your dad. We just have the same mom and she must have sucked because she must have cheated on, on, on my dad. She completely disowns him in that one line. This entire monologue is such a powerful, like just like biting, monologue because she believes that her brother, what she thought was her brother, is asking her to do this terrible, terrible deed in order to save him. So that just goes to show that, you know, when you're listening to that monologue, and I will say that Shakespeare does take a little bit of time to get used to, but if you sit and watch Shakespeare um, for like 10, 15 minutes, you will be surprised at how much you'll start getting after that 10 or 15 minutes. You'll kind of just, your brain will adjust to the language a little bit. Um, so. I would like to ask a question. Does it make sense when you're watching Shakespeare to already know the play and to know what's going to happen in order to get what the language is? Because if you're just listening to that language, it's like, what the hell did he just say? That's a really good, if, you, if you're not, see, I, there are plenty of Shakespeare plays that I myself have not seen, and I know the brief outline of, but because I know my brain enough to know five, 10 minutes into this, I'm gonna understand everything that they're saying. I choose not to read the, the synopsis before, but I know a lot of people who necessarily don't click right into it once they start watching like to do that. I think that does lead into our concept for the whole podcast is because you should watch it first without the background knowledge, so then you can gain your own insight and kind of see what you take from it. And then afterwards, if you wanna go and see what Shakespeare really means, but it's Shakespeare, so who really know what he really meant anyway? You can kind of gain your own insight. 
Exactly, exactly. So that really just comes back to the fact that, like, you know, I just gave this Shakespearean monologue that probably nobody really understood until I started analyzing it. But it definitely conveyed a lot of emotion. It definitely, you know, was bitter. It definitely was very, very biting, very fierce. And that's something that even if you don't know what it means, you can get something from. And I think that that really exemplifies itself in all forms of art. There's really no right answer. And the intention of the, of the artist doesn't necessarily matter if you get something different. Okay, well, that is all that we have for today. Uh, thank you so much. Any other questions before we end? No? Okay, thank you.